It's hard to top that story, hard to preach on that story, isn't it? Rory picked great songs. I think uh, the music team's outdone themselves on the songs all throughout this series. I often think of Joseph um, just meditating on those songs all, the whole way through. I've thought of uh, uh, Isaac thinking about those and <clears throat> Jacob thinking about those and then Joseph thinking about those. So uh, it's been incredible. Father God, as we come before you <clears throat> this morning to hear your word preach and proclaim, Lord, I ask that you would just open our hearts and minds to what you have for us. Close our ears to any air that I may speak, Lord. And as we continue this series in Genesis, uh, Lord, as you've just taken us on this journey, Father, I ask that you would just um, just impress upon us the meaning of these these scriptures. They are powerful. They are meaningful. They are influential. And they are critical to our our understanding. Uh, we don't we don't often grasp the meaning of these passages. We, we read about them in Sunday school and we think we get them. We don't. We don't really fully understand them. But Lord, if we don't understand this, we don't understand, and we don't understand Scripture. And so, Father, I pray that you, would, that you would just continue to unpack them for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we uh, left off last week. Uh, we we're studying a little bit about this passage uh, we've gone quite a journey, right? We've gone all the way through Isaac, and now we're all the way into Joseph's life, and we're kind of coming to the end of this. Now, everybody's learned these passages, like I said, in Sunday school, and we've kind of got a Sunday school understanding of these passages. And so as we've gone through these passages, we've seen some tough, tough things, right? When you're in Sunday school, we get kind of a rainbow, a unicorn, candy corn understanding of these passages, And now we've gone through it, and we've got some shocking things, right? We've been horrified as we've unpacked some of these things. We're like, whoa, I didn't know that was in there. Whoa, I didn't know that was in there. We've just kind of skimmed over those when we were little, when we were younger. And sometimes when we're reading through these passages, we were astonished. And so we asked the question, why does God put some of these tough things in the Bible? After all, God is clean cut, right? He's clean cut. He doesn't deal with icky things. We don't like to deal with icky things, and yet these icky things are in the Bible. Well, we're going to kind of see why those icky things were in the Bible today, right? In the life of Joseph and his brothers. And so we left off with Joseph testing his brothers and weeping in the other room. That was a dramatic scene. After years of slavery and imprisonment and now hard work, as the number two in all of Egypt, he finds himself face to face. That's what he did. He found himself face to face with all of his brothers and most of all with his little brother Benjamin, right? He never thought he would be with his little brother Benjamin, and he was in fact worried that his little brother Benjamin had been killed. And he would think that because he was almost killed and he thought that his big brothers were trying to kill the children of, um, of Rachel. So, that's what he's thinking. So he finds him, and now he's testing his other brothers. He sees Benjamin, but what kind of men are these other brothers? And so that's what he's going to do now. Now, how is he going to test them? Well, he knows Benjamin's safe. It's a massive relief. They didn't try to kill them, so at least something is good about these guys, right? But he wants to find his father, so he's got to figure out how to get his father down there. And this is the plan he hatches. 
So in Genesis 44, 1 and 2, he commands the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of a sack. Now he did that before. But this time he says, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And they did as Joseph told him. So this is the same thing he did, except now his silver cup is in Benjamin's sack. Now, it's one thing to steal some money. It's one thing to steal some things from the house. But this is Joseph's cup. This is like the number two man to Pharaoh. Now, it's one thing if an aristocrat steals something from Joseph's table. That's still bad. It's another thing if an Egyptian steals something from Joseph's table. That's still bad. But these guys aren't even Egyptians. They're just coming into the land, getting some extra stuff and food. They're begging for extra food because Joseph has some extra. But they are now stealing, supposedly, from the number two man in the land of Egypt. Right? So when they send these guys after the food and they open the neck and then Benjamin has this cup, his brothers are horrified, right? And they should be, because if this cup is found, it's a pretty scary thing. Now the question is, why is Joseph doing this in this way? And why is Moses telling us all about this, right? So Moses is writing this, that's what we're assuming. He never really tells us who the author is, but I'm going to assume it's Moses. So who, why is the author telling us this, and why is Joseph doing it in this way? Those are the two questions that you need to keep in mind <clears throat> when you're reading this story. Now, perhaps Joseph is doing it in a, a little bit just to torment his brothers. And we wouldn't blame him. His brothers did kind of some bad things to him, and so he might just be poking them and taunting them a little bit. Now, I would do that to my brothers, right? And I would have no problem with that. Right? Watch him sweat. Watch him twist in the wind a little bit. He might be laughing in the other room. But also, Joseph may have learned a thing or two as the number two in Pharaoh's he, He's kind of a wise guy at this point. He wants to check them out. So when he brings his brothers back, he doesn't taunt them. Rather, he clearly uses the ruse to find out about their character. And it's here we learn about the growth of the 11 brothers. And that's why you need to read the passage carefully. He's learning about all of the brothers in these passages. And they have grown quite a bit. Now think about this. Up until this point, these guys did not distinguish themselves very well. I want you to think back across this, these passages. I mean, we want to say that Reuben was a pretty good guy. But was he? Think in the past what Reuben actually did, right? I mean, he didn't want to kill his brother, right? So we could say Reuben was a good guy because he wasn't a murderer. Does that qualify him as not as, or as a good guy? Reuben wasn't a murderer, right? But he also kind of had an affair with his dad's wife. So that's kind of stealing. So Reuben wasn't so great. Now, he did offer up his children, right, if he wouldn't get Simeon and Benjamin, or he wouldn't bring Simeon back, right? 
So Reuben has changed quite a bit. So we do see some change in Reuben. But the other brothers don't offer anything to go get Simeon back. And it takes two years before Judah offers up himself to go get Simeon back. Now, Simeon and Levi, remember what they did. Anybody remember what Simeon and Levi did? They what? Killed a whole bunch of people, remember, in Shechem? They killed a whole town full of people out of revenge. Now, it's possible that the other brothers participated in that, or it's possible that the other brothers followed Simeon and Levi, and they took all of the children and the wives and the extra ones. Now, it's possible that they didn't, and it's just the clans of Simeon and Levi, and we might get there and we might assume that because of the not-so-much-blessing, maybe kind of a curse that we're going to read that Jacob puts on Simeon and Levi when he dies, right? He blesses all the other sons, but if you read the blessing upon Simeon and Levi, maybe not so much of a blessing. So maybe it was just their clans that participated in that, but possibly all the brothers participated in that as well. So these guys weren't great guys, but remember, we want to like pass all this judgment on them, and we, they weren't great guys. I mean, let's not kid ourselves, but Remember, they're not believers at this point. It seems like because they have all these other household gods and stuff that they're relatively, they're pagans, right? All the way through this process. And so they're growing. And then, of course, Judah. We have the Judah and Tamar incident. I won't go through all of that. But that's kind of what's happening through this whole process, right? So we've learned about all of these guys. Now, we get to this story right now. So what's happened at this story right now. Joseph is testing him, and he finds out a few things. Well, when they show up, and they bring back Benjamin, the brothers are horrified. And what's one of the first things that the brothers tell everyone? 44, 8, and 9. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also um, will be with my Lord's servants. Right? And so what does he say there? He says, we are so confident that we're not thieves If you find anything in anyone's sack, we will die. And so we learn right away that these men have changed and they've become relatively honest men. They're saying, look, we're not thieves. We're so confident we're not thieves. You can kill us if you find anything in our sacks. So these men have become honest. Also, they're confident that their brothers are honest. They've learned to trust one another. So something has changed with these men. Now, that's a huge jump in integrity for this group. Now, Moses is showing growth in the sons of Israel throughout this entire story. 
And if you remember that this is being written to the Hebrews wandering in the wilderness, then you get while this growth pattern that he's showing is critical. And we're going to understand this a little bit more as we go on. And I mean like us, the Hebrews in the wilderness knew failure. Think about this. During some of the greatest, most spectacular miracles in all of human history, what happened to the Hebrews in the wilderness? They kind of whined like hangry. You know what hangry is? You get hungry and you get angry. They whined like hangry four-year-olds, right? I mean, if you think about what happened to the Hebrews in the wilderness, think about during this. They saw some of the greatest plagues that have ever hit. They saw some of the greatest miracles. But during those ten plagues, the Hebrews themselves often complained to Moses, right? They themselves often questioned God during those plagues. And then the Hebrews crossed through the Red Sea. It parted. However, we're reading that Red Sea, Red Sea, whatever sea it was, they parted and they see it split this side and this side, and they actually walk through the Red Sea. Parted water, this side and this side. Amazing, right? Astonishing. But what's even more astonishing is they come out on the other side and the Egypt, Pharaoh, sends his army through that Red Sea, right? The entire most powerful army on the planet goes through after them. God crashes that down, wipes out the most powerful army on the planet, and within three weeks... The Hebrews are begging Moses to go back to the land of Egypt so they can be slaves where they were treated well and fed well and begging and saying, do you remember how they treated us when we were beaten? No, we were fed so well and nourished and loved. And time and time again, this happens in the wilderness. See, Moses is reminding them of their journey as well and their children who are going to finally go into the promised land because the Hebrews are so bad in the wilderness that God finally says, enough. You guys are so ridiculous and so faithless that you're going to wander around in the wilderness till the last one of you dies and your children will go in. See, this reminds them of the journey from faithlessness to faithfulness. And they're seeing this with their forefathers, who were also faithless, and go to faithfulness, because all of the 11 take this same exact journey. It's an amazing journey. How many times in your life Has God done wonderful things for you? Think back. How many times have you had God do a wonderful thing in your life and you've forgotten it? How long did it take you to forget? A month? A year? A day? Right? Told you this before, but I used to journal my prayers and write them out. It's a great exercise to do. If, when you think God is faithful, just journal your prayers. Journal your prayers. Write them down however you need to do. Keep a couple years worth of prayers. And then do this. 
When you think that God is faithless and not answering your prayers, I want you to go back through your journals and I want you to read your prayers. It is the most humbling experience I have had because I saw that God answered prayers on almost every single page. Now, that wasn't the humbling experience. The humbling experience was I had forgotten almost every single prayer that God had answered. How pathetic am I? We shake our fist at the sky during our darkest times and we say, God, where are you? Because we we don't remember. We don't remember. That's why God has the Hebrews build all these monuments so they can come back and look at it. These stone monuments, these 12 stones aren't, we think they're like the Hebrews all picked up some little tiny stone and set it there. These were people who built pyramids. You think they were picking up little stones? God had them build major markers. Write your prayers down. I guarantee you, you have forgotten so many things that God has done for you. I have. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're a lot better than me. Wouldn't, wouldn't be hard. What's interesting is Judah steps in to plea for Benjamin. Now, when we studied Judah last, or we've been studying him and following him, One of the most interesting ones was the Judah and Tamar account, right? And Pastor Mike, when he talked about that, said, this is weird. This account is weird. And it was. I'm not going to go into all the horrific stuff in that. But when you look at that account, most people are like, why is this in the Bible? This is icky and gross and disgusting, right? And a lot of us want to put our fingers in our ears and cover our eyes and go, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear this. It should never be preached on. It should never be talked about. How in the world could a pastor ever say this from the pulpit? And yet it's in Scripture. And so sometimes we're offended, though, that God puts these things in the Bible. So it must not be in the Bible. In fact, I've had people tell us and tell me that these things weren't actually put in the Bible by God. Or I've had people tell me that the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament, and God has grown. And yet he does. Why does he do that? Why has he put this in the Old Testament? Well, the next comes Joseph and Potiphar's wife, And we saw all of the parallels, and then we understood a lot more of why it was there. But we also saw this, that Tamar was in the line of Jesus, because he was from the tribe of of Judah. But the man Judah was a white-hot mess. So why in the world was Judah chosen? Why? I mean, Tamar, we can understand. She's wise, she could, we, we can get that. But why Judah? 
Well, now, finally, mercifully, we see a glimpse of why Judah, and here he foreshadows Jesus. Genesis 44, 32 to 34. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy, my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah learned through Tamar, an icky story, and a story that we would rather close our ears to hear, but we don't get the redemption of Judah if we don't understand Tamar. Life is not rainbows and unicorns and candy corns. Now, some of us as believers will have that kind of life, and God bless you. But many more of us will not. And if you're out there in the world, you will see that sin has marred the world and the world is a yucky place a lot of times. It's filled with good and it's filled with evil. And a lot of us will experience that evil. But the Hebrews had experienced evil. They had come from 400 years of slavery. And when you're a slave, you do not experience life as good. And they came out of that evil. And they themselves were struggling with evil. And they saw that their forebear, Judah, had struggled with evil. And Judah had done some pretty nasty things. Life was ugly. And you don't understand the redemption of Judah until you understand how far he came and how much God could change a man. And God has changed a man who was one of the darkest men we see in Scripture. And then look what he did with him. God changed even the worst of sinners. This boy who was so enraged at Rachel's son, his brother, that he sold him into slavery, now will sell himself into slavery for Rachel's other son. Jesus. Jesus is going to be the perfect fulfillment of substitutionary sacrifice. He pays the price for our sin, but Judah displays the willingness to do this for Benjamin. And the Hebrews are going to experience this with Moses, who throws himself at the Lord's feet time and time again to sacrifice himself for the Hebrews. This is the model which Jesus lays out for us to follow as well. Listen to this, John 15, 12 to 14. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay his life down for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Judah's learning. Moses learned. And the reason we can do this is that we understand that we are not simply here and now. We are creatures that will be alive a thousand and ten thousand years from now. That's why we can offer our lives. We don't live simply for the now. Jesus understood that. He's teaching us that. Judah has learned this. He offers his life. He doesn't even know if he's an eternal creature. But he will offer his life for the sake of his brother and his father. He's journeyed from a self-centered, hateful, greedy pagan 
to a selfless, loving servant of God. And you don't understand it until you've understood the Tamar story. God is a God of redemption. And this is a beautiful story, and it's a story of tremendous hope. You have hope. No matter what you've done, there is hope in Jesus Christ. The power of Judah's redemption and the brother's redemption is so strong that even Pharaoh is in awe. He's floored. When Judah, or sorry, when Joseph redeems himself to, or sorry, reveals himself to his brothers, Pharaoh hears about this. He hears this story, and he says, go and bring your father back. He sends him all this wealth, and he says, bring him back. All of Egypt is rejoicing in this story. And now we understand why all of this happened. So how could these bad things happen, we ask? And Joseph tells his brothers this. At the end of this whole story, he says this. Genesis 45, 4-8. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God has sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And we'll end with this. And this part's a shocker and a thinker. It's a complete lie that God does not allow bad things to happen to good people. It's a bogus teaching of the health and wealth gospel. Bad things can and do happen to godly people. Nothing happens to us that is out of God's control. Notice this. In this story, Joseph's brothers sin massively. Potiphar's wife sins. The cupbearer sins. Joseph gets wronged again and again and again, just like Jesus, just like the apostles. All of them have bad things happen to them, and all of them are godly people. Do not Think for a moment that because you are Jesus' servant, bad things will not happen to you. Anyone who tells you the opposite is a fool and a liar. And yet, God is there every single step of the way. Joseph says it. And What does Joseph say? God sent me ahead of you through all of this. Wow! That's a... That is a mind-blowing, bone-jarring statement when you think of everything that happened to Joseph. Does that not blow your mind? Slavery imprisonment, left for dead. 
God sent me. This doesn't fit into our happy, clappy, candy corn, unicorn, rainbow world. But it does fit into the biblical world, though. This is our God. I don't like this. I don't like it one bit. But this is what Scripture teaches. Our God is everywhere. He doesn't abandon you even in your darkest moments. He's there. Even when it feels like he's gone, he's not. But how does that evil work out for good? Now, here's the thing. How does the evil work out for good? I want you to listen to me carefully. How does the evil work out for good? <clears throat> I don't know. I don't have to know. I don't. God knows. These things will work out for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I don't have the answers. And sometimes we have to fall on our knees and say it is enough that God does. And that has to be enough. Sometimes he's merciful and shows us. A lot of times I've had hard things happen to me and I see it at the end. In the middle of it, I don't always see it. Joseph here, at the end, they see it. And it's amazing. It's an amazing story. What a powerful story to the Hebrews in the wilderness. We don't always have to see it. All we have to do is trust God and lean upon him and trust that he will be there for us and be there with us, be there in it, and be there to help us through it. Amen?